For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray now that you would speak to us through your word, uh, that you uh, would challenge us and convict us in any place where we need to confess and to change and repent. Um, Father, that you would encourage us in every place where we feel um, low and apart from you, uh, that you would draw us to yourself through your word today. Amen. So as we've been preaching through this series on uncommon unity, I've been working some things out in my own head about unity and diversity. And I I think I've come to some, I hope, clearer and, and perhaps better and more biblical thoughts about unity and diversity over the last couple of weeks. In my own mind, I've been thinking about unity and diversity as opposites of one another. Uh, Two realities that we have to kind of work really hard to reconcile together. But over the last couple of months, I'm beginning to see things a little bit differently than that. What is the opposite of unity? I don't think it's diversity. What is it? It's division. The opposite of unity is division. The opposite of diversity is not unity. The opposite of diversity is uniformity, sameness. Diversity and unity are not opposed to one another. They're actually not even possible without the other. We worship a Trinitarian God. The divine nature reflects this truth. We worship one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Diversity and unity are both integral to the divine nature. Diversity without unity is division. Unity without diversity is uniformity. I just want to just sit with that for just a second. I think that this is a better understanding of these ideas of diversity and unity that we've been talking about over the last couple months. If you are going through the curriculum in your small group or on your own, the topic of this week's curriculum is our diversity in personality, stories, backgrounds, and perspectives. Now, I remember when Simpson and I were putting this together back in the spring, uh, setting out the different topics that we're going to be talking about. We just thought, you know, there's just some ways that we're just, we're just different. You know, it's not like a particular topic. It's just kind of like all of the ways that you and I as human beings are different from one another in our personalities, in the stories that we come from, in our backgrounds, in our different perspectives. And I just want to illustrate this a little bit with some congregational involvement, okay? And so for the next couple of minutes, we're going to see the ways that we are all different in our backgrounds, our personalities, um, and whatever else it was that I said, stories and perspectives. Okay, so I would like for you, for us to first to think about our spiritual or our religious upbringing, 
and to look around and to see the different ways that you, different homes that you and I grew up in and the ways that reflected different spiritual or religious upbringing. So stand up if you grew up in a Catholic or Orthodox home. Wow. Okay. All right, have a seat. Stand up if you grew up in a Lutheran home. Okay, we are in Fort Wayne, lots of Catholics, lots of Lutherans here. All right, Baptist or Mennonite or Amish home. Stand up. Okay, a lot. All right, you can sit down. If you grew up in a, a non-religious or an other religion, okay, so a non-religious or some other religion, stand up. Okay. All right, let's think about where we have lived If you have lived in Indiana your whole life, stand up. Wow. If you have lived in another country, stand up. If you ever had an address in another country, stand up. All right. If you have ever lived in a city with over a million people in it, stand up. All right. Have a seat. Okay. A couple lighter-hearted ones. If you like country music, stand up. (laughs) All right. Stand up if you watch more than five minutes of the World Series. Oh, man, I don't know why I'm a part of this church. Not nearly enough baseball fans here. All right. Okay, how about this one? Stand up if, you, if you're an extrovert. All right. I will not make you introverts stand up. All right. You can have a seat. <laughs> All right. Um, stand up if you started following Jesus after you were 20 years old. Wow. Awesome. Praise God. Stand up if, if your parents were divorced. Okay. How about this one? Stand up if you have ever feared for your life. All right, have a seat. So these questions reflect a very, very small snippet of each of our stories and backgrounds. And these are just a few of the, like, literally millions of questions that I could have asked today, um, but didn't. We could have talked about questions about economics, how much you make every year, or whether you've ever known a day where you wondered where a, a meal would come from. I could have said, stand up if you voted for, fill in the blank. Could have talked about questions about, about race or whether you've experienced racism Stand up if you experience physical or sexual abuse in your life. There's so many different parts of our backgrounds, of our stories, that impact the way that we see things. Today we heard about the persecuted church. That's a different story and perspective than we typically have here in the United States. Can you imagine a sister in Christ if she was here among us today who had been imprisoned or beaten for her faith? I just kind of wonder how that might change the way we would talk around her. If it would change the way that we maybe argue or debate about the things that we're really passionate about, if we knew we were in the presence of someone who has suffered for the faith. There are different personalities and stories and experiences in this room. 
And those things have shaped the way that you view the world, shaped the way that you view yourself, shaped the way that you see your neighbor, and also shapes the way that you read the Bible and the way that you understand and live out your faith, and also the way that you enter into the church community. And the Bible anticipates these differences. The Bible anticipates that the church is going to be a group of people who come together with all different kinds of backgrounds and stories and perspectives. And because of that, we bring different opinions on certain matters. The whole Bible, the gospel stories, the New Testament letters, all of that is very, all the Bible is very realistic about this aspect of our human experience. We have differences. Our backgrounds, the way we grew up, our personalities shape the way we read the Bible and shape the way that we understand and live out our faith. And when we encounter these differences in our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible calls us to walk the narrow way of diversity in unity. The temptation when we encounter differences of opinion is to either do one of two things, to either divide or to demand uniformity. When we face difference of opinion, it's often our temptation to either divide or to demand or force uniformity. But the call of Christ in the church is different because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Our scripture reading today is Romans chapter 14. Our different backgrounds and experiences cause us to see the world differently and to live out our faith differently. The same was true in the church at Rome that Paul wrote this letter to. In the church at Rome, who Paul addresses this letter to, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. There were Jewish followers of Jesus who grew up strictly following the kosher laws of the Torah, and there were Gentile followers of Jesus who grew up worshiping the Roman Caesar and the other gods of the Romans. And these different backgrounds and experiences, and we'll get into all of that today, but these different backgrounds and experiences led them to different opinions about what foods they should or should not eat and what days were more important than others. And Paul knew and he heard that these differences could cause division in the church or that there might be some leaders who might try to force their way in and demand uniformity around these issues. And so he writes to them about how to stay on the narrow way that avoids both of those temptations, either division or uniformity, and calls them to live out diversity in unity. And the teaching in Romans 14 is profound. It is simple and it is profound. I wrote three different sermons this week. (laughs) Romans 14, I was also going to talk about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I was also going to talk about Peter and Cornelius in Acts uh, chapter 10. But I became so interested in Paul's teaching in Romans 14 that we're just going to camp out here today in Romans 14. 
It is so practical and deep, and it teaches us how to walk this narrow way of diversity in unity. In this teaching, Paul not only teaches us how to avoid division or uniformity, but what he also does in this profound way is that he also doesn't slip into some sort of moral relativism, as if every opinion is the same, where our opinions don't, our opinions don't matter. He's quite clear. Our beliefs and the actions that flow from them matter very much to God. In fact, they are so important, Paul says, that we will stand before God and someday give an account for them. The scripture we heard from Romans 14 is a helpful teaching from Paul because it tells us how to respond to one another when we bump up against these differences in what Paul calls disputable matters. And Paul brilliantly paves this narrow way forward and calls us to to this narrow way that avoids both division and uniformity, and that also avoids some sort of moral relativism that that says that because we all have different opinions, we can't know the truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and that's it. That's not what Paul's saying here at all in Romans chapter 14. So if you've been a part of the church very long, and perhaps maybe even especially the last three or four years, you're likely very well aware that the topics that we disagree on in the church are different from the topics that the church in Rome disagreed on. But the relational dynamics that are taking place that Paul addresses are exactly the same. We have differences in this church. We have differences in the church worldwide. And sometimes these differences are about very petty things, questions about what we should wear or not wear to church or what music should be played or not be played or how long it should be played or how loud it should be played. And we know for sure that churches have divided over those sorts of petty little things. But we also have different views about very important things, about politics, about church leadership, about eschatology, about free will and predestination, about baptism and about the view, different views of the Lord's Supper. And these are really important matters, and our differences of opinion really do matter and really do have an effect on our church and on the world. And some of these differences are, are really port, important, and it's difficult even to discern what matter is essential and what matter is disputable. And that is a perennial question over the last 2,000 years that the church has often had to wrestle with. Is the question we're looking at right now, is this an essential matter or is this a disputable matter? I may try to bring some clarity about those differences next week. But for our purposes this week, let's just take note that Paul is clear. There are such things as disputable matters in the church. Not everything is a matter that we have to die for or divide for. Not everything is a matter that we have to lose fellowship over. Christians simply do not have to agree on everything in order to fellowship together and to worship God together. In fact, the truth is there are far more disputable matters than there are essential matters. 
essential matters are actually very, very few and disputable matters are infinite. (laughs) We could literally divide over all sorts of things, but there are only a few things that the scriptures talk about as essential. And again, I hope to maybe talk about that next week. But back to Romans 14. In these chapters, Paul teaches that when we come to one of these issues that is a disputable matter, the primary and most important question is not what, but how. The primary question is not what, but how. The primary question is not what I believe and what you believe. It's not what I think and what you think. The primary question is how. How do I treat my brother or sister who is different than me? How do I respond to the brother or sister who has different convictions than me? How can I love my brother or sister who believes or practices their faith differently than me? Jesus said that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus did not say that the world will know you are my disciples by knowing all of the right answers and by having all of the right convictions. He said, the world will know that you are my follower if you love one another, if you love your brother who's different than you, if you learn how to respect the brother has different convictions and opinions than you, if you stay with people. If you stay in relationship with them, even if your convictions on disputable matters are different than yours, that's how the world will know that you are my disciples. The sign of spiritual maturity, the sign of being a strong brother rather than a weak brother is the capacity to live together in unity with those who think differently than you about disputable matters. Let me say that again. The sign of spiritual maturity in Romans chapter 14 is the capacity to live together in unity with those who think differently than you about disputable matters, even matters that are very, very important to you, even matters that you are fully convinced in your own mind that you are right about. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and also receives human approval. So let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I want to be very clear. Disputable matters are often very, very important. Disputable does not mean meaningless. Disputable matters are often very, very important. It's not that they're not important. It's just that we often place more weight on them than they were ever intended to carry or to bear. Paul is not in this passage in any way saying that because there are differences of opinion on these matters, that all opinions are the same and that we should just move on and agree to disagree. You have your truth. I have my truth. Let's just all be nice to each other. That's not Paul's teaching in Romans 14. Because there is another how question embedded in Romans chapter 14. 
The first question is, how do I treat my brother or sister who disagrees with me? The second is, how do I stand before God with a clear conscience? It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This does not sound to me anything like whatever you think is fine. (laughs) What Paul is saying is we are all going to stand before God and our opinions, our opinions and our actions will be, we will be held accountable for those. And so he emphasizes that when we act, we must do so from a place of faith. The last words on this whole chapter is that anything that we do must come from, that does not come from faith is sin. To believe and to act from faith is to understand and to believe that all of our beliefs are from God and that they, we seek to conform our beliefs to his word and to know that all of our actions are done in his presence. God has given us sufficient guidance in the scriptures on what to believe and how to live a life of faithfulness in any and every culture and situation. And you and I will stand before God, stand before God and give an account for our opinions, our beliefs, our actions on everything big and small, essential and disputable. And so in this passage, Paul is not saying that anything goes because we have different perspectives and all perspectives are the same. Not at all. We will all stand face to face with Jesus and give an account for our opinions and our actions and our beliefs. And so Paul says in this passage to the weaker brothers, listen, take the burden off of making sure that your brother conforms to you. It's not your responsibility. There are disputable matters in the church, matters on which two sincere and well-meaning Christians can disagree, and God does not need your help. He does not need your help changing that person or judging that brother or sister. He will do that on his own. And it's important for us as we read Romans chapter 14, as we think about our church and how we're seeking to be a church of uncommon unity, is to simply come to terms with the fact that there are always going to be people in your life. There are always going to be people in our church who believe differently than you. And there will always be people in the church who are weaker brothers. That is, people who cannot discern between what is essential and not essential. People who cannot discern between an essential matter and a disputable matter. The weak in Romans 14 are those whose consciences are constantly bruised and threatened by the views of other people who are different than them. The weaker brother is the person who draws lines in the sand about who is in and who is out and who is right and who is wrong about this disputable matter or another and then holds other people to the same standards that they hold themselves to. On the first reading of Romans chapter 14, we may think that the weaker brother that Paul describes in this chapter is a person who's really conservative and limits himself so he can't do anything, and that the stronger brother is the one who can do anything because of their freedom in Christ. But I think a closer reading of Romans 14 tells us that the weaker brother is the one 
who is not able to discern the difference between a disputable matter and an essential matter, and then leads the church to division or forces uniformity. And Paul tells us that there will always be people in churches that are weak in this way. Sincere people, people who are earnest in their beliefs, but who fixate on particular issues that are important to them and demand that other people follow along. They demand uniformity or they divide if they don't get their way. And they always have biblical proof texts for their beliefs. And if you disagree with them, then you must be disagreeing with God. And there are always going to be weak brothers and sisters in the church who act in this way. And the reason for that is because we're all weaker brothers from time to time. All of us have our thing, right? Where we just think, if you would just agree with me, everything would be awesome. If everyone would just agree with me on this thing, we are all the weaker brother from time to time. And in those times, we need our stronger brothers. I don't know how many times over the years I have been the weaker brother and Pastor Simps has reined me in. Bro, slow down. You are making this issue way bigger than it is. And I want to say to you that if you are really sincere and earnest in your faith, it's almost impossible to not slip into the role of the weaker brother from one time or another. If you actually love and have concern for your brothers and sisters, it's hard to not to try to convince them that they're wrong and that you're right. And so Paul, acknowledging that the church will always have weaker brothers in it, that I would say that every single one of us have this temptation to make other people conform to us, Paul does this reverse judo move where he very mildly corrects the weaker brother. He says to them, to the weaker brother, don't judge. But then he places the responsibility on the stronger brother to maintain unity. You who are stronger, you who recognize when a matter is disputable rather than essential, you are to defer to and protect the weaker brother. Your responsibility is to not do any damage to the conscience of the weaker brother. If you are free to eat meat or drink wine, but a weaker brother isn't, don't you dare eat meat or drink wine in their presence in a way that will harm them. If your brother is convinced about some opinion about the scriptures and is trying to demand that you think the same way, your question in that moment is not what, what can I do to make them think differently? What can I do to convince them otherwise? But instead, how? Your responsibility in those moments is not to cajole or to convert, uh, coerce them to think differently. Your question is, how do I love this weaker brother or sister right now? How do I make every effort to bring peace? How do I make every effort to bring about encouragement, mutual edification in this person's heart? The concern of the stronger brother is not to win an argument. It is not to convince. That is always the concern of the weaker brother. The stronger brother 
trusts that God is the judge. The stronger brother trusts that God is fully in control, that he has the whole world in his hands. And because of that, I can be free to not take this matter into my hands and compel you to be compelled by me. The concern of the stronger brother is the life and the health and the spiritual growth of the other person and the unity of the church as a whole. This is the brilliant judo move that Paul does here, where it seems like Paul would instruct, correct the weaker brother, but what he does is instruct the stronger brother. The stronger brother will give up all sorts of his or her own rights, will lay down their opinions and their rights if that means unity in the church is preserved and that the weaker brother is not caused harm or suffered any sort of bruised conscience because of your freedom. The stronger brother always gives up their rights for the sake of the weaker. This is the way of Jesus himself. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not a matter of voting or of protest or of getting our theology exactly right about predestination or about baptism or about the details of the return of Jesus. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Lord, we pray that you would show each one of us in every way where we may be playing the role of weaker brother, where the matters that are important to us, that are core in many ways to our identity. Lord, the ways that we then place demands on others because of that. Lord, and I pray that you would bear us up and make us stronger brothers who are our main goal, our, our, our main hope is the unity of the church and the building up of one another. Lord, this, this is impossible without your help. And so, Lord, we do ask by your spirit that you would help us to be this kind of people with one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.